The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I'll invite you to open God's Word to John chapter 7. We're returning to our studies in the Gospel of John. I'm going to read verses 37 to 39, just three verses this morning, but these three verses, as you're going to see, are just packed with truth that we need to understand. Verse 37 of chapter 7, John records, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds this. He says, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When I read this passage of Scripture this week, I immediately thought of what David said in in Psalm 42, verse 1, when he said, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for God. My soul thirsts for God. David said that the main longing of his heart was for God, and he uses this really vivid picture of a deer who's thirsty, panting for water to describe the way that his own soul thirsts for God. And really, that's what Jesus is talking about here in the temple at the the Feast of Booths in, in John chapter 7. He's saying, look, if you're thirsty, if you're thirsty spiritually, come to me. Come to me and drink. And the reason why the Scriptures point us to drink at the well of God is because we were created for God. You were put on this earth to know God, to live for His glory. Paul says, Romans eleven thirty six. for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. That's why you're here. That's what the catechism says. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Paul says in Romans chapter 9, he says, God is a potter, and that we're all vessels of clay. We're clay pots. So, God shaped you. God formed you. So, it's important to know why God put you here, why God shaped you, and why God formed you. And the Bible says that you were shaped, you were formed to know Him and to give honor and glory to Him. And in so doing, your soul is satisfied. God made the human heart to only be satisfied in God. And if you've run from God long enough, you know that to be true. You know that to be true. If you've lived in licentiousness, you know where the end of that road ended, and you came back to God. 
The prophet Jeremiah said this. This is Jeremiah 2.13. You know this verse, very familiar words. He says, my people have committed two evils. The first is they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's the first one. So they forsook God. And then he said, two, they hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That in one verse is the plight of modern man. You think about it. We have more technology than any other generation on the history of the face of the earth. We have more means of transportation than anybody else in the history of the earth. It used to be if you were a, a, a little girl growing up in Ireland, let's say, and you decided to get married and, and cross the, the Atlantic to America, when would be the next time you would see your parents again? Maybe never. Now, you can pull out your phone and FaceTime your mommy in a matter of seconds. So we have that type of access in terms of communication and relationship. But people today are more broken than they've ever been. People are more depressed than they've ever been. Why? Because we've forsaken the fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns of our own making. Uh, J.C. Ryle was a bishop of, in Liverpool over 150 years ago. This is what he said. He says, such thirst as this unhappily is known by few. All ought to feel it. All ought to feel this thirst for God. And he says, and all would feel it if they were wise, but sinful, mortal, dying creatures as we are, with souls that will one day be judged and spend eternity in heaven or hell, there lives not the man or woman on earth who ought not to thirst after salvation. And yet the many thirst after everything almost except salvation, money, pleasure, honor, rank, self-indulgence, these are the things that they desire. There is no clear proof of the fall of man and the utter corruption of human nature than the careless indifference of most people about their souls. Man is miserable, and man is in the darkness. In the words of Jesus here, man is thirsty because we live our lives apart from the living God. Do you ever remember being thirsty? Thirsty. I remember in football practice, we had a football coach who would punish us. This is not a good idea. By not giving us water. And, and we would get thirsty. I remember when I was a little boy, my grandfather, he used to make me sit down with him and watch westerns. And we watched a, a western one time called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Ever remember that? Well, there's this great scene, great scene in that, in that movie where Clint Eastwood's character is held at gunpoint by a guy named Tuco, who turns out to be the, the ugly in, in, the, in the title. And he makes Eastwood walk a hundred miles across a desert. And all the while, he's sitting there riding his horse. He's got a pink umbrella, a pink umbrella that he's holding over his head, drinking water. And at one point he stops, Tuco does, and he even washes his own feet and makes Eastwood's character watch it. But there's, what was fascinating to me as a, as a little boy watching that was you see, just in the way that they did the cinematography, is you see Eastwood's character and his, his, um, his position change as he goes through the desert. 
he starts getting hunked over. He starts staggering. His skin starts to look like a prune. He, I don't know how they did that, but he, he just, he, he, all, the, all the moisture goes out from him. He staggers. He has no energy. He becomes desperate. And you really see a picture of what it is to live without water, to go without water. And really in a picture, that's what a soul looks like without the living God. That's what a soul is without the living God. You're in a desert without water. You're staggering. Your skin is dried. You're sunbeat. And the sad thing is, as Ryle says, is so many people don't even know it. They don't even know that they're thirsty, that they're dying. The question is, do you know it? Are you thirsty? Are you thirsty for the living God? What I want to do this morning is I want to show you how to get water spiritually, how to get water. This is what Jesus is explaining. Look at verse 37, what John says. He says, on the last day of the feast, the great day. So let me give you some context behind what is happening here because you have to understand the context of, of what John is saying for you to understand the implications of, of what Jesus then says. Context, when you're trying to interpret a passage, is everything. I once heard it said that the three most important things when you're trying to interpret Scripture are first, the context, second, the context, and third, the context. So context is really important, and it's really important that you understand exactly what this feast is. So this past week, I, I said, I need to go back and read some on what this Feast of Booze, where they're at, is. So I turned to a, a, a Jewish guy named Alfred Edersheim. Edersheim was an expert in Second Temple Judaism. He, he came to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, lived about 100 years ago. But uh, he, he wrote a lot about the feast, and so I went and read what Edersheim had said about the, the feast. Well, so this is taking place at the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Scripture records that this was a seven-day feast, a seven-day feast that took place on the 14th day of the month. Remember this, the 14th day of the seventh month and lasted to the 21st day of the month. And that month was the month of Tishri. That would be September, October in our time frame. Eventually, an eighth day was added. So, we're not exactly sure if this is the seventh day or the eighth day, but for all intents and purposes, it was probably uh, the seventh day. And Edersheim said three things marked this feast. Three things marked this feast. First, it was the most joyous of the Jewish feast. It was the most celebratory. It was a time to display gratitude to God for His gifts and provisions. So Moses, when uh, he's giving instructions regarding the feast in, in Deuteronomy chapter 16, beginning in verse 13, says, you shall keep the feast of booths seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor in your wine press. Listen to this, verse 14, you shall rejoice. So it's a time of rejoicing. It's a time of celebration. Who's to rejoice? Everybody is. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. For seven days you shall keep the feast of the Lord your God at the place that the Lord will choose, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands. 
listen, last line of verse 15, so that you will be altogether joyful. So it was a feast of joy. Second thing that Edersheim says you need to know about this feast is that during this feast, everybody lived in booths. What's a booth? It was basically uh, a shelter. I remember one time I did a wilderness survival merit badge, and you had to build a shelter out of wood. That's basically what this was. It was, it was a shelter that everybody constructed out of bows of a tree, and it was very explicit about what type of wood could be used. But everybody would live in booths. If you even lived in Jerusalem, you also had to live in one of these tents. You would go and, and set up your, the, the, your booth on the top of your house, on the flat part of, of the roof of your house. Basically, when these millions of people would, would come to Jerusalem for this, it would be like a giant Boy Scout jamboree. Everybody lives in their respective booth or tent, every single family. And this, in, in some sense, pointed back to their time in the wilderness when they, when they did not have their own dwellings, when they lived in tents. So Moses says, this is Leviticus chapter 23, Leviticus 23, verse 42. He says, you shall dwell in booths, that's these tents, for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So that was unique about this. It was, it was, so it's joyous, it's festive. Everybody's living in these booths. And then Edersheim says that there, there were some ceremonies that took place that we need to know about. There were many different offerings, sacrifices, rituals that took place throughout the course of these seven days. Uh, the first thing that we need to know about these, these rituals and these sacrifices is that they sacrificed a huge number of animals. So at Passover, they would sacrifice 14 bulls. At the Feast of Booths, they sacrificed 14 bulls on the first day of the feast. And then they would keep on sacrificing these bulls throughout the week. All in all, 70 bulls, 14 rams, and 98 lambs would be sacrificed throughout the week. That's 182 animals. It was basically a bloodbath of sin offerings. And by the way, 182 is divisible by seven. All those numbers are divisible by seven, seven being the perfect number of God. So everything is very precise in these offerings. In addition, there was a ritual. Now, this ritual is not mentioned in the Old Testament. This mention, this, this ritual, Edersheim says, developed what's during called the second temple period. This is after the second temple was built. Malachi, remember, writes the last book in the Old Testament. This ritual developed after Malachi was written, but before Jesus comes. And what this ritual was is a priest would take a golden pitcher from the temple, and he would go to the pool of Siloam with a large procession of people behind him, and they would go down through the city and fill up that pitcher in the pool of Siloam, and then they would process back to the temple. They would come through the water gate, and right as they would come through the water gate, the priest would blow the trumpets three times, and then they would come into the temple, and they would pour the water in that golden pitcher out 
on the altar. It was a drink offering that was given to the Lord. Now, here's what the water represented, Edersheim says. He says it represented, one, the water that God provided for the children of Israel in the wilderness. Remember, several times they were thirsty. God provided water for them to drink. But it also points forward to the prophesied giving of the Holy Spirit. Pointed forward to when the Holy Spirit would come in power upon His people. And undoubtedly, Jesus knew these Old Testament texts. For example, Proverbs 1, 23 says, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my Spirit to you. Isaiah 12, 3, many think that they would chant Isaiah 12, 3 as they walked, says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. The prophet Isaiah said, Isaiah 43, 19, Behold, I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Isaiah 55, 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Jeremiah 17, 13, For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. And then David says in Psalm 36, 9, Yahweh is the fountain of life. So the water pictures this work that God is going to bring and pour out His Holy Spirit on His people. Now I want you to look back at verse 37, and I want you to jot down, make a, make a note, the anointed one, Christ. Remember, Jesus was baptized with what? The Holy Spirit without measure. Christ is His title. Jesus is His name. Christ simply meant anointed one. That's what it means. It means you could say Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. Christ, Christos, is the anointed one. Jesus is the anointed one. And Jesus, John says, stood up in the temple, most likely at this very moment as the priest is walking in with this golden pitcher. And Jesus stands up and he cries out. That word cry means to yell. He explodes above all the ceremony and pompous, and says, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. What's profound about this, and, and there's several things that I think that are very profound that I want you to notice before we talk about what Jesus says, but the first thing is that this is a fulfillment of prophecy that is given in the Old Testament. I want you to turn to the book of Haggai. Haggai. Turn to the left all the way towards the end of your Old Testament. Haggai was one of the last prophets. He prophesied after the children of Israel came back into the land and were in the process of rebuilding the second temple. His ministry started in 520 BC, which was the second year of King Darius of Persia. Now, I want you to look at Haggai 2.1. Haggai 2.1. And I want you to notice when Haggai makes this prophecy. Look at 2.1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, when is that? It's the last day of the Feast of Booths. 
And he is making this prophecy standing on the temple mount in the very place that Jesus is standing as he stands up and cries out, standing in the exact same place. And he says, in the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, and he, and he speaks to Zerubbabel, who was to rebuild the temple, and you can go back and, and read what he says there. But I want you to look at verse 6. Look at verse 6 of Haggai 2. He says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house, this temple that's about to be built with glory, says the Lord of hosts. This temple will, this new temple will be filled, filled with glory. And you look at verse 9, he says, the latter glory, so the later glory of this house, the glory that is to come, shall be greater than the former. Remember when Solomon dedicated the temple and all of its glory, its beauty and majesty, and the Spirit of God came into the temple, and people thought, man, this is it. Don't get any better than this. Haggai saying, it gets better. That this temple this rebuilt temple, will experience a new glory. And that's exactly what is taking place in John chapter 7, 500 and something years to the exact day. To the exact day. Jesus is the greater glory, the anointed one who is coming into the temple. So if you turn back to John 7, What Jesus is saying by standing up as these events are taking place, I think is obvious, and that is, is that He is the fulfillment of what is transpiring. He, is the, he wouldn't stand up in the midst of the temple and, and yell out these words if it were anything otherwise. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of this water that is being poured out. And by the way, I'm the fulfillment of all of these rams and bulls and lambs that are being slaughtered. Do you remember John, in John chapter 1, John the Baptist made two predictions about the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he is, behold the Lamb of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of all those bloody sacrifices. But John the Baptist also said something else. He said, that's the guy who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you with the Spirit in a fire. And that's what's being pictured with the water. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who will baptize with the Spirit. I'm the one who will give the Spirit. And by the way, this saying that Jesus makes isn't off the cuff. It's not attention-seeking. It's costly. It's costly. Because for the Lord Jesus Christ, the anointed one, to give us the Holy Spirit, who are sinners and undeserving, he would have to go through his own wilderness of thirst. He would. I was reading John chapter 19. John, I think, pointing back to this. In John chapter 19, 
Remember, Jesus, the, the other gospels, the synoptics, say that while he was on the cross, remember, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember that? At that moment, the fellowship between the Son and the Father was severed, and Jesus felt like he was in his own wilderness apart from the living God. And John records what he said in those moments. Do you remember what he said? Two words, I thirst, I thirst, I thirst. John says that this was to fulfill Psalm 69, 21, for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. But my friend, you need to know that that thirst was not just a physical thirst. It was an endurance of the punishment of God for our sin. And it was for a brief time, a severing of his communion with God. It was a spiritual thirst. Isaiah says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And by his thirst, we are satisfied. And I say all that, pausing to look at this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is standing up in the temple, for us to remember that all glory is his, all the honor is his. The life that he offers is a costly life. The spirit that he promises to give is a costly spirit, but he would go through the wilderness of our sin to do it. That's the type of Savior that we serve, and for that reason, he's worthy of all the glory. Next, I want you to see the invitation that he gives. Jot down the invitation. Look what Jesus says. He says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. J.C. Ryle says these words should be written on gold plates. I love that. Jesus' call, this invitation, is given to the spiritually thirsty. And of course, everyone outside of Christ is spiritually thirsty, without exception. But not everyone knows the depths of their thirst. Not everybody knows that they're walking in a spiritual desert. But notice the inclusivity of this invitation. It doesn't matter, Jesus says, if you're a Jew, a Gentile, a moral person, or a lawbreaker, an intellectual, a Pharisee, or a shepherd. What's the only criteria? Thirst. The only criteria is that you realize your thirst, that you're thirsty. What Jesus is saying is, is that you must be willing to admit your need before God. You must be willing to admit your spiritual need. A thirsty man is a desperate man. Desperate. If you're thirsty, if you've been truly thirsty, you are desperate for help. A spiritual woman is a desperate woman who is desperate for spiritual help. People that are in a spiritual wilderness. So what Jesus is saying is, is you must recognize that you're, you're in need, that you need something to spiritually satisfy your thirst. That's what he's saying. 
what type of spiritual thirst is this? Obviously, it's spiritual. It's not, it's not a, a physical thirst. In, in John chapter 6, we saw this. Remember, Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and eats my flesh and drinks my blood, it, that's, that's metaphorical. It's not, it's not a literal cannibalistic eating or, or drinking. Jesus is saying, you must spiritually come to me and drink. Drink in what way spiritually? Well, John goes on to record three spiritual needs that we all have. One is the need for atonement, the need for atonement. We all carry guilt. We all have a degree of skeletons in our own closet, and the question is, what do you do with them? What do you do with the wrong things that you've done? Do you try to self-atone? Do you just go further down that path of sin, saying, well, I've messed up. I might as well just keep, keep going. Do you self-justify by saying, man, I you know, I know that I mess up, but look at that guy. Look at her. I, I'm better compared to her. How, how, what do you do with your, your sin? Everybody deals with this. And Christianity says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the way that you get rid of your sin. So, it deals with our need for atonement. It deals with our search for truth. Every person spiritually wants to know why they are here, who put them here, what's our purpose, what delineates right from wrong, what's our ethic, why do we live. There is an existential search for truth that people have. Carl Sagan, remember he did that show Cosmos years and years ago, said, I don't want to believe, I want to know. I want to know truth, truth. So, spiritually speaking, you remember what Jesus said? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the essence of truth. He is the bedrock of all truth. All the truth that you can know in this universe is anchored out of Christ, who is the Word, who formed all of it. So, He is the answer to all the existential questions. Francis Schaeffer, years and years ago, wrote a book called The God Who Is There. And he said, quote, in a fallen world, we must be willing to face the fact that however lovingly we present the gospel, listen, if a man rejects it, he will be miserable. It is dark out there. Because if you don't have the light of the truth, you live in darkness. And therefore, you can't circumnavigate through the different moral issues. You ever talk to somebody who doesn't believe in God? You ask them, well, do you believe this is wrong? And they're like, yeah, that's wrong. It's wrong to kill somebody. And you ask them, well, why do you believe that? Uh, I just do. Well, that's not, that's just circumstantial. That's just your opinion. You have to have a foundation for your ethic. And Christianity gives that. Christ gives that. And then third, there's a longing in the heart of every person for love and relationship. God made us to be relational beings. There is an existential search to belong to people. And that search ends ultimately with the knowledge of God and to know God and to be known by God, to be loved by God and to love God. Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That knowledge speaks to a knowledge of intimacy, not just ethereal knowledge, 
not just uh, a knowledge of perspective, but a knowledge of relationship. And so Christ promises to bring an answer to all of our thirst, the need for atonement, the search for truth, the longing for love and acceptance. And the great example of this is just a few chapters earlier in John chapter 4. Remember, Jesus was making His way north, and He, on a divine appointment, goes through Samaria to the village of Sychar, and there He encounters a woman at a well. And this woman, if you look at her spiritually, we don't have time to look at, look at the, the chapter uh, in depth, but if you look at this woman spiritually, she's on her sixth guy. Jesus says, you've had five husbands, and the one that you live with now is your sixth, and you're not married to him. So, she's a lawbreaker. She obviously has been rejected by people. Notice that she's at the well alone. Nobody wants to be at the well with her. She's an outcast. She's been rejected by probably men. She's been rejected by people in the village. She's living a life of sin, and she has existential questions. Remember what her question was to Jesus when she realized that He was a prophet? You say that people are supposed to worship in Jerusalem. We say that we're supposed to worship on Mount Gerizim. Which one is it? She has these existential questions. And what Jesus says to her, very similar to what He says to all these people in the temple, Jesus said to her, remember, they're at this well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But, every, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus offers to seekers, to the thirsty, this water that wells up to eternal life, to seekers just like this woman at the well. Well, what does it mean to drink this water? What does it mean to receive this water? If you turn back to John 7, I want you to write down next the gift. This is what Jesus offers. This is what Jesus offers. This is what it means to drink. Look at verse 38. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Notice that word believing. At its root, it's it's the Greek word pistis. It's the same word as faith. It means to believe in Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is that to drink of him is synonymous with believing in him. To believe in Jesus is to drink at the fountain of Jesus. Believing and drinking are the same thing. Just like coming to Christ is synonymous with believing in Him, so is drinking synonymous with believing in Jesus. That's clear. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says. That's what drinking is. As the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, this believing is not just mere intellectual assent about who Jesus is. Remember, James says, even the demons believe in what? Shudder. Even the demons have some some type of intellectual knowledge of who Christ is, but this is a trust in the person of Christ. That's what this believing is. It's a putting your trust in Christ for all that He is. 
That's what it means to drink. And Jesus says, if you do this, this is the result, that out of your heart will flow rivers of living water, as the Scriptures has said. Now, it's clear what this is talking about because John explains it in the next verse. Now, this he said about the Spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to received. But I want, to, I want you to pay special attention to this phrase, out of His heart. Out of His heart. It's the Greek word koilia, koilia. Often it's translated in the New Testament as stomach, but it, what, it, what it means in its essence is the deep inner recesses of a person. The New American Standard translates it the innermost being. J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase, translated it the inmost heart. And Paul says that it's in this inmost part of our soul that we long for things. He says in Philippians 3.19 that people's God is their belly. It's the Greek word koilia. That's where the desires come from that drive us. That's where our affections come from, deep in our, the recesses of our soul. You ever wake up in the morning and you just have some desire for something? You're like, where did that come from? Where did, how did, how, why am I desiring this? Because it comes from inside you. And Jesus is saying it is in that place, that innermost place in our souls, that the Holy Spirit will come in our lives if we believe in Him and be an ever-flowing stream in the deeper recesses of our soul. Prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 58, 11, and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And John said at the beginning of this gospel, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. So what he's saying, if you follow the logic, if you believe in me, if you believe in Jesus, you're drinking from me, you will receive this gift of the Holy Spirit who will come into your life in the innermost recesses of your heart, and there he will be an ever-flowing stream, an ever-flowing stream in the heart, and he will satisfy all of your desires. Your desires for communion, he will bring the presence of God to you. Your desires for truth, he will lead you into all truth. You will know why you're here. You will know the metaphysical answers. You will have an ethic. You will understand why you do what you do, that it's for the purpose of God's glory and God's honor. You will know the forgiveness of sins. You will know where you stand before God. You will know that, that he died in your place, and so you don't live with guilt, condemnation, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. It will be a constant fountain running in your soul. Let me say two quick things about this. First, it leads to deep spiritual satisfaction. And two, this fountain, this spiritual fountain in your soul bubbles up and overflows into the lives of other people. People will look at your life and say, why do you have so much joy? 
Why do you have so much certainty? Why don't you live with this guilt? And it's because the Holy Spirit is overflowing in your heart. This doesn't mean that you always feel it in a skippity-doo-dah type of way. Sometimes it's just a resolute knowledge that you are forgiven of your sins. Sometimes it's just a a resolute certainty of the truth regarding what God has said about you. Sometimes it's an intimate knowledge of God where the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, but it overflows out of our lives and into the lives of others. Now, there's a careful clarification about this in verse 39 that the Apostle John gives, and I want you to write down, lastly, the coming Spirit, the coming Spirit. If you look at verse 39, this is a very helpful clarification to explain what Jesus has said. Verse 39 reads, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Listen, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let me explain that statement. Because if you read the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is present everywhere in the Old Testament. Everywhere. You, you, you look, you read, you see the Spirit. Remember Moses walking in the wilderness, sees a burning bush, the Spirit is there. The, the Spirit of the Lord guided the children of Israel out of Egypt in a cloud by day, fiery furnace by night. The Holy Spirit is everywhere in the Old Testament. When the people gathered at the temple, they, they would see the glory Shekinah cloud coming down. The Holy Spirit's presence was there in the temple. The Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant regenerated every single believer, every single believer. Um, remember when Nicodemus came to Jesus, and Jesus said, are you the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand this? This is, this is basic that the Holy Spirit, Ezekiel 36, regenerates every single believer. But what was different in the Old Testament is that the Holy Spirit only anointed and baptized certain individuals, not everybody. And those individuals would be the prophets, oftentimes the kings, sometimes the priests. But you see this, Deuteronomy 34, 9 says, and Joshua the son of Nun was full of the spirit of wisdom. Why? Because he was a Christian? No. But because Moses had laid his hands on him, had passed that succession to Joshua. Ezekiel, the prophet, says, as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. So he says, I was anointed by the Holy Spirit for this prophetic ministry. This is why David prays in Psalm 51 after he had committed that sin with Bathsheba where he committed adultery. He prays to God, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. In the new covenant, God never takes the Holy Spirit from, every, from anybody. But in the old covenant, the Holy Spirit's anointing was contingent on your office in the work that God was having you fulfill. Now, what Jesus says, and you don't need to turn here, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn here and, and read it to you. In John 14, just listen what, what he says. John 14, Jesus says, this is 14, 16. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, helper a, a paraclete, a comforter, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, listen, for he dwells with you. How does the Holy Spirit dwell with them right now? In the anointing of Christ. 
You remember Christ was anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism without measure. So they've seen the anointing of the Spirit on the person of Christ, and the Holy Spirit has been with them in that way. But look what Jesus says, or listen to what Jesus says, and Jesus says, and he will be, future tense, in you. He will be in you. So the Spirit that you've experienced through me will be in you in the future. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus is saying. Then in, in John 16, verse 7, Jesus says, for that reason, it's the, to our advantage that Jesus goes away so that he can send the Holy Spirit who will mediate Christ's presence to us. And one of the things that's interesting that the apostles pick up on, remember Jesus is saying these things, where? At the temple, where the Holy Spirit's presence was located. But what does Paul say about the believer who's received the Holy Spirit? 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? You see, with this gift of the Holy Spirit, Jesus makes us each as individuals as a temple. That's why you don't, you don't need to go to a certain location. You don't need to go to Israel, though we're taking a trip in March, to meet with God. You don't need to go there to meet with God. You can meet with God anywhere. The believer has the Holy Spirit living within him. Paul says, Romans 8, 15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So, in summary, every single person now, after Pentecost, because that's when the Holy Spirit was given, every single believer on this side of Pentecost receives the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you are a believer and you've truly trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a temple of the living God. The Holy Spirit lives and dwells within you, and He mediates God's knowledge to you. He brings that relationship to you. He testifies that you are forgiven, and He does this as a constant flowing stream. It's, as John says in John 1.16, it's grace upon grace every single day of the Christian life. Grace upon grace, grace upon grace. But the question is, is do you have that fountain in your life? Have you drunk from the fountain of living waters? Have you truly trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and received that gift of the Holy Spirit? Trust Him. Are you thirsty? Come to the fountain and drink. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we we thank you for this offer to come to you and to drink, and that you promise to satisfy, that you promise to satisfy the very depths of our heart, the longings of our heart, the spiritual needs of our lives, that you promise in the atonement of Christ to forgive us of all of our sins, that you promise to bring truth that we know why we're here to live in this world, and our lives are illuminated by that truth, and you promise that we can know you holy God, triune God, and Jesus Christ, and that we can commune with you. We praise you for these things, Lord. We thank you for them. We thank you for this offer of living water. And for your glory, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, now is an opportunity as a, as a church to take part in communion. The, the juice that we drink 
and the bread that we break and eat pictures the body and blood of Christ that are poured out for us. We don't believe that these things become the literal blood and body of Christ, but they represent what Christ has done for us. It's a spiritual communion. It's a fellowship with Christ that we share and that we share with one another. That's why we don't take part in the cup and the bread when we're apart from the body. You don't just go to Chili's and do this. You do it with the body of believers because our fellowship is with God and it's with who? One another. So we share this fellowship together, and that's why we take part in this meal together. We take the element at the same time, we drink the cup at the same time, and that symbolizes the fellowship that we each share in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because it's a new covenant meal, it's a covenant meal that's given for every single new covenant believer. And so if going through this text today, if you have truly trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have truly believed in Him, in your heart of hearts, if you have drunk from His well, then we invite you to take part in this cup and in this bread. This, this meal is for you. So I'd like to now invite our deacons to come forward, and we are going to pray over these elements together. And the way that we're going to do this this morning Sometimes we've come forward and we've all filed out of the pews and we've come around to the front, but it's, it's just been, become more and more difficult each week with the number of people that are here to do this in a way that, that is just with, with order and, and, and that type of thing. And so what we want to do is we want to give you time to reflect and time to think about what Christ has done for you and just to sit there. And when the, when the plate is passed, then you can uh, receive the element. And then we just ask that you wait until we all have it, and then we'll partake of it together. But let me pray over this, and then we'll dispense the elements to you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to the throne of grace. We thank you for the cross of Christ. It's only by the blood of the Lamb that we stand forgiven. It's your body given for us, your life for our life, your death for our death, and your resurrection is the guarantee of our resurrection. So for that, Lord, we come to this table. We confess our sins. We know that they are many, but we know that your mercy is more. Our sins are great, but your grace is greater. We come to this table, Lord, and we celebrate the forgiveness that we have in Christ and the righteousness that you have given. We pray, Lord, that we would live lives that honor you, that we would be your people as you are our God, and that we would live lives that obey you, that we would follow hard after Christ, that we would abide in you with all of our hearts. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.